Good morning, good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you find yourself in the world at the moment, and welcome to the QS In Conversation podcast. I'm Anton John Crace, and I am the editor and program designer at QS. On our second episode of the pod, I'm joined by Rob Smith, higher education and e-research specialist, Asia Pacific, at Microsoft. Rob has over 17 years' experience in the Asia-Pacific and in his role, works with universities to enable transformation of education, research and operations across the institution. In our chat, we discuss the changing nature of employment, the adaptability of higher education to online models, how COVID-19 is impacting employability outcomes, and why today's young people may be more prepared for the future of work than once thought. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thank you very much for coming. Anton, thank you very much for having me. Starting to give a chance to speak to your audience. Now, uh, it's quite interesting having you on this podcast because you work for Microsoft uh, within the education division in Asia Pacific. Can you tell me a little bit about what the what the work is that you're undertaking? Sure. Yeah, my role is to lead our strategy for higher education uh, across what we call Asia Pacific. Um, and, and that really is an opportunity for us to focus what we're doing from a technology and platform perspective to hopefully solve problems for our educators and students uh, across the region, which is quite exciting uh, and gives me the best of both worlds, the, the real world, the education landscape, but also uh, keeping my fingers in, in touch with technology as well. This episode, we're talking about graduate employability and also graduate employability in times of crisis and uncertainty. Um, I thought the first thing we should ask, though, considering you do work for a very large global tech company, is what does Microsoft look for when they're hiring graduates? Okay, that's a great question. Um, And I think there's no one thing that we're looking for when we're hiring graduates. And and I do believe it's constantly evolving and changing. If I look back to my own experience when when interviewing and looking for a role at Microsoft, I think I went through around seven interviews. Others will go through 10 to 12. And the reason for that is we're we're not necessarily looking for a CV or a piece of paper. Uh, We're wanting to understand how a potential employee can fit into our organization because we're hiring not necessarily for, for roles, but for careers. So there's always a weighing up of the the competencies of an individual versus them having specific knowledge or understanding a product or how to use a tool. Um, We definitely also want to understand, are they the type of person that can overcome challenges? Do they have an ability to learn? Because if if somebody had all of the competencies and knowledge for a role, then they're probably not looking at that role. They'd be looking for something more. So there'll always be gaps, but how can those individuals be be ready to learn, learn on the role and adapt to change? Well, some of those comments right there reflect a lot of what the corporate world is talking about in terms of uh, it's not necessarily the knowledge and just the knowledge that is uh, displayed by someone who's looking for a position, but equally those other soft skills. Um, in that instance, I suppose, do you think that, um, or how how can universities prepare their students for employment after graduation? Are they doing a very good job, or are there areas that they need to change? Look, I think that's a that's the million dollar question. Sometimes um, uh, there's definitely we we do see a disconnect between. Well, we did some surveys across Asia, and there was around seventy five percent of institution felt institutions felt their graduates were ready for the workforce. But in contrast, less than half of the employers or the graduates that we interviewed felt their their graduates were ready for the workforce. And and some of the skills that were lacking were those some of those sort of 21st century skills, problem solving and critical thinking, but also there was a lack of technical know-how. I think a comfort on a graduate's perspective that they're ready from a technical perspective. And Mm -hmm. every organization is now a technology organization. 
I'll give an example. There was one of our uh, strategic customers and partners globally that cited it takes them about six months from the time they hire a fresh graduate to when they're actually productive and working on their platforms. And they can't deal with that sort of lead time. They need graduates to be ready or new employees to be ready straight away. And they'd cited the need for probably two to 3,000 interns and graduates needed in the next 12 to 24 months. So we've been working with them to understand how we can help close that gap uh, and drive sort of technical capability, not just in the, the traditional areas of IT and systems and platforms, uh, but across every major possible so that those graduates can hit the workforce, hit the workforce running. That also hits on to one of my other questions was, is there a disconnect? And, and you've said, yes, there definitely is. I find for me, having sort of gone through the conference circuit for a long time and talking about graduate employability, especially in terms of international education, there has been a desire for institutions to partner better with the corporate sector. And also there's a desire for the corporate sector to partner better with the higher education sector. Um, and yet there still seems to be this ships in the night approach. Is there anything that you think that uh, both sides should be doing to bridge that gap a little bit more? Yeah, I think it's a, that's a great observation as well. You know, it used to be called work integrated learning. Uh, there's that idea of how do we provide more real world experience and more relevant experience to, to graduates whilst they're still in their learning phase. Uh, and I think the learning phase nowadays will be far beyond just that time between school and starting a career. It will be a constant period of, of learning for, for what will be, be graduates. So we're definitely seeing that need for application of real world um, real world learning. Uh, the coming together of, I think, the willingness of the enterprise to, to get involved in the learning process and the willingness of institutions to move away from necessarily creating a graduate for a career and starting to be able to cre um, prepare them for a job. And that mm. integrated approach, therefore, means that you've, you've probably got a, a far more practical learning far more real world knowledge, um, the ability to adapt to some of those things I spoke about earlier that we're looking for when hiring, the ability to collaborate and work in teams towards an outcome beyond just a, a group assignment, but then also to be able to help the individual, the graduate to demonstrate experience. If they maybe come out with a portfolio of problems they've solved or code they've built or projects they've done uh, to really be able to demonstrate that they can, uh, they can work in the workforce and be ready to hit the ground running for say. Absolutely. And I suppose uh, in a lot of uh, aspects and respects into this conversation, quite often we talk about the corporate world and then we also talk about the institution and the students themselves get sort of forgotten a little bit in the mix uh, and their their positions aren't heard as much as they should be. And certainly they're not given as much um, as much opportunity to explore and be taught how to present themselves in a um, in, in the way that the corporate world wants them to to present themselves. Now I'll move on to a different line of questioning and part of the reason why we're doing this of course uh, the QS in Conversation podcast is because you and I are both in Singapore we're in circuit breaker mode at the moment so we're effectively in lockdown. How do you have any information uh, on how graduate employability is changing during COVID? I think there's a great meme going around as to who is driving digital transformation in your organization. And it's it's not the CEO or the, the transformation officer, it's, it's COVID. But I think as that happens, we're seeing uh, an acceleration of the realization of modern working. Work isn't necessarily what you do, uh, so where you are anymore, it's more around what you do. And I think that's going to accelerate the, the gig economy as we look at new employment models, as we look at as we look at reskilling, uh, the change in skills that are going to be needed. And I think employment contracts will really evolve as well. 
And ironically, some of our graduates, I think, are now going to be better suited to that new normal, coming into this world of uh, video conferencing, collaboration online, working remotely, working odd hours, more personalized learning st- uh, working styles, I think will come to the norm. And I think that's going to help some of our graduates bring their their best self and uh, the knowledge and the skills that they have, which is fantastic. Hmm. But I also think as we, to your point, being in lockdown, working remotely, uh, working online, I think we'll see the the geographical borders disappear as well. The ability to, for people to look for work they may not necessarily look for because of their location, their physical location. As we see some borders broken down, some borders probably hardened for a considerable period of time. And the talent demands are still going to be there. The adaptation of organisations to the, to the new normal, they're, they're looking to to hire new talent, I think we will see uh, graduates exploring new opportunities. I I do question whether we will see more short-term contracts, more agile working models, which will be different uh, for those graduating as as well. Um, I think there's going to be some positives and negatives there. Uh, But I see some of those being major impacts on on the new employment models during and post-COVID times. Mm. The, I suppose to synthesize a lot of what you've just said there, it's really, it's not just the adaptability, but also creativity. Uh, and then a lot of young graduates, because they have come, they've grown up in, um, uh, I suppose, a very different world uh, where there is different modes of communication, different modes of entertainment, etc. Um, there is a level of creativity that's required from graduates in order to pave their own career. If we bring it back to the institutional level, then how do you instill that creativity or encourage that creativity for graduates to consider what their career is? You know, you do a degree. I did a Bachelor of Journalism. It's very clear the type of job I was supposed to get. Now I'm an editor uh, for an education publication, so it's a little bit different, still in the same vein, changing a little bit. How, how should institutions be encouraging that creativity? Yeah, I, I I think it's a tough one. Um, yeah, there is no cl- class for creativity. Uh, there is no class for collaboration. They're not necessarily subjects. And maybe this re reenvisage what career services can look like as well. I always joke that I, I left school and started becoming a, a mechanical engineer and a draftsperson. I've ended up in IT. I've ended up in education. And, and ironically, uh, uh, sorry to some of our listeners, but I don't have a degree myself. Um, and I, I don't see that it held me back. But having the ability and the willingness to try, fail and learn certainly helped me in my career. And I've had multiple of my opportunities presented due to demonstrable competencies, um, being seen to be outgoing, being seen to be problem solving uh, and being seen to try something as well. To your point, how can we expose that to graduates as they are going through their learning? And I think that's as we start to expose, I still look back to when I did my first work experience and it very much changed my outlook on my previously chosen career. And I think that type of thing is going to help. I think the ability to now do potentially digital internships uh, to expose people to areas with uh, students to areas they wouldn't have been exposed to before to help them then pave their own way. And -hmm. at the same time, I think technology can help as well. We can help identify when either self-attested or institution-attested skills that a student may have, we can help them understand where they could build on those skills and take them in a direction that they maybe didn't uh, expect in the past. That actually sort of hits on to another question I have as well. Don Carlson, uh, who is your boss a couple of levels up, isn't he? Uh, he's, my, he's my fearless leader, yes. 
your fearless leader, he has made some very interesting comments uh, in recent history, just before COVID too, around the implementa implementation of technology within education and that sh it shouldn't be done for technology's sake. And that's similar to what a lot of other people have said. Um, I interviewed someone many years ago who made the comment that a preschool decided that they were going to get smart play tables. Uh, they bought smart play tables, spent $1,000 or even more on them, and then they weren't used by the kids because all the toddlers needed was some building blocks, and that was what they needed. In that instance, are providers getting the most out of the, the ed tech opportunities and the technology that, that they're investing in at the moment? Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree with the statement around technology for technology's sake. It has really no place in edu education, um, and there's no shortage of choice, no shortage of shiny widgets and gadgets at the moment. Now, I think what we've just seen around the, the response to COVID is a real knee-jerk reaction to um, adopting technology. Uh, and I think what we're going to see is a, an evolution or a moving past this respond phase to how institutions and, and organizations can recover and then reimagine. And I think learning is, is ripe for that. Thankfully, we have seen some really thoughtful adoptions of technology to enable remote learning across across our region and globally. Um, it's been humbling to be able to work for somebody like Microsoft and see the technology used to provide continuity. But it, beyond just, hey, let's turn on a video call and put students behind a desk at home rather than behind a desk in the classroom, it's been around how can that reimagine learning? And how can those same approaches be used when we move to that new normal and we have the face-to-face -face learning as well so that technology can still be leveraged. And we're hearing from many CIOs, they had bet on distance or remote or blended learning technologies for some time now, and they are feeling vindicated that where they had made decisions to, to not just go for best of breed software or applications where they'd made a bet on how to change pedagogy and deliver new learning models, that's really being um, vindicated right now. And we hear so regularly uh, from, from educators now that they have been kind of forced to use some of these tools, uh, how they, they didn't know that Office 365 could do that, or maybe I don't need all these tools and technologies. I can do things within, within a single platform. And I think that's really important that the technology is starting to be integrated more seamlessly in the learning process. So again, uh, I think it's the ed tech space is very crowded. I think there are a lot of op options. Um, you know, we have some, our competitors have some, uh, but it's about, I think, how they're used and used for the right reason rather than for the sake of having some technology. And maybe right now is, is a good time to be exploring what is what is possible. Absolutely. The ed tech space is one of those areas that it doesn't, I feel it doesn't get quite as much coverage as it, as it should be. And COVID-19 certainly has uh, made people look at it. However, for a long time now, there's been a lot of venture capital going into the ed tech space as well. A lot of uh, accelerators for ed tech, um, not just for, for international education, but for early learning, um, high school, uh, pretty much every level of education. But I want to go back a little bit earlier. You said that there's a few examples of thoughtful adoption throughout the region of ed tech. Uh, do you have any, any good examples that you'd like to share? Looking to Thailand right now, uh, they we've been working with the, the, the ministry there um, uh, focused on higher education. And as they made a very, very quick decision to be able to move all of their learning to online learning, but at the same time, we, we work with them to deploy just tools like Microsoft Teams and Office 365 into the hands of all of their educators. Now, they, they knew that they couldn't have 2 million 
sort of start uh, faculty and students turning on tools tomorrow, uh, but they've then looked to roll out um, professional development for educators, you know, training, how to use. We've had those within within the community that have adopted the tools to be able to push this forward. And they've had a nice mix of the online learning through things like Teams and natural collaboration, but then using some other technologies to provide offline or asynchronous learning as well. Because we still have an absolute digital divide uh, in accessibility to technology, whether that be devices or bandwidth, but then being able to take some of these digital content and take it offline to meet the needs of the, the students that don't have access has been really, really important. And we're seeing that coming to the, the front now. We're moving past that respond online classes to now this reimagine and using the technology. So when we come back into the classroom, I think the, the same practices can be used as well. There's a lot of talk about when things go back to normal or the new normal, whatever it happens to be. Uh, certainly there'll be a lot more blended learning uh, and a lot more, not just, actually it's not just blended learning, but also I suppose blended working and that maybe we don't need to be in the office all the time. Um, me personally, I sort of am missing being in the office at this point in time. Uh, the walls are starting to talk back to me. But you have hit on a really interesting point as well that I suppose is also not as much spoken about at the moment, which is that while this is an opportunity to reimagine education and to provide students with something a bit different, it's also a very big opportunity for professional development for the academic and teaching staff as well as the student services staff. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's a huge opportunity. Um, we've all known educators have had choice around what they use in the classroom. Um, as an ed tech company, we've been very conscious of you know, how do we make these, how do we make the tools easily adoptable? How do we make them usable? And I think this is putting that professional development to the forefront. I think everybody would have an anecdote around an educator of a um, demographic that doesn't want to change and would either would stop most digital transformations or, or pedagogy changes with technology. I don't think those options are there to say no anymore to a certain degree. And therefore, we are driving and seeing the need to 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 embrace to a, to a larger degree um, technology. But also, I think as we move out of this reactionary mode, we will see a more proactive view on that professional development, carving out time, um, pathways, approaches to to make sure we don't leave any educator behind. So I think any of this transformation for universities is going to start. It will still start with educators. Do you have any sort of broader predictions as to what education might look like uh in a year's time in two years time it's a, it's a great question i wish i had that crystal ball uh i, I do think that uh, as I, said, I think there will be more technology used i think our the the general comfort levels will be far higher with both technology and the, the pedagogical approach i think we might see a bit more of the ai infusion or artificial intelligence infusion into the learning process now we, we've always talked about bots and um, ai to predict learning paths those types of things i think as institutions pivot and as these new opportunities for reskilling and scaling do come to light, there will be more of that technology use. I think that will be a big one. I am hoping to see less of a focus on attendance and more of a focus on outcomes. And I think we we are getting to that stage now where we'll, people can't attend right now and we will understand and we'll have a, a much better, I suppose, data set to understand and quantify the impact of physical presence versus digital participation. Um, so we can make some much more informed decisions on the right form of, of pedagogy so it's yeah, it's hopeful it's i think it will evolve I, I don't know that we'll see a complete revolution 
there will be definitely, I feel, implications for international students on what that experience looks like. Does it, does it go back to where it was or is it simply a more digital experience as well? Um, and I know I have my children that now understand that they should join a meeting on mute. They understand how to raise their hand to ask a question. They can do things that I would say a lot of uh, our colleagues in the workforce can't do. So <laughs> I think the uh, it bodes pretty well for using technology in, in education as well, I think. The other thing too is that um, with the plethora of uh, EdTech providers out there there's also the opportunity to provide very bespoke learning opportunities for each student which sort of leads me to my next question for you which is we had to get back to graduate employability because that's what we wanted to talk about but um, what are the opportunities for institutions you see moving forward in the graduate employability space yeah i i think one thing we are seeing is we look at potential whole industries being changed um, take the, the tourism industry or the airline industry. We have airlines, essentially, uh, unfortunately, so, some that may not survive here. Um, others that have fantastic workforce, highly skilled workers, highly in-demand workers that, that potentially aren't going to have roles in the future. So we will see this, this reskilling, and we're seeing that across a number of our, our countries I'm working with at the moment. Uh, so we will potentially see universities look to look to engage with those employers, look to engage with those, uh, to, with that workforce to, to look at that reskilling opportunity. So I think that's the big one. How do you take somebody from the aviation industry and maybe move them into agriculture as an example? Um, the, there will be skills um, and experiences that can be, be used across both. And, and these will be, I think, highly qualified individuals as well. There'll be others from service industries um, uh, that will certainly look for opportunities to reskill uh, at the same time. So that's the, the big thing we are seeing. There's always the question of, is the four-year degree dead? Uh, do you need one anymore? And I, I certainly think there is a place for that. I, I think some certainly in uh, a number of majors as well. But this will, I think, breed um, the need for more agile courses. And I think that works back to that work integrated learning. How can the heck, what is the role of the institution in these shorter courses. And that's where those partnerships with industry can come uh, come into play as well. I know at Microsoft, we're looking to provide globally recognized certification for specific job roles, be it a, a data scientist or an AI engineer, so that when these students are graduating, they have both the qualifications from their institution and the knowledge and they're ready for their career. They can have some uh, demonstrable experience from maybe an internship or practical application with with partners and then potentially industry certification as well so they're they're far more rounded as a as a graduate ready to go into the workforce that coupled with the more practical education and a closer knit link with industry uh, we may even see more students not graduating they may go straight into the workforce uh, and the workforce continue or uh, finalise that education for the, for the graduate as well. I think there's a, a definitely a few opportunities there, but I think it will come down to agility. And the, the last piece I think is around that, uh, we spoke about that borderless working style and also education. Uh, international student experience could change immensely. Uh, we see it a lot in Southeast Asia, a lot of universities that are branching out. Uh, I think there will be more opportunity for that moving forward as well. All right, Rob, I think that's the perfect note to leave it on. Thank you very much for joining me. Anton, thank you very much for having me and uh, thank you to all our listeners for tuning in.
Hello, everybody. It's Anton here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the QS In Conversation podcast. Uh, Now, the series is going to take a little bit of a hiatus over the month of June because we're going to be hosting the EduData Summit series, which is going to be looking at how higher education can meaningfully use data to drive innovation for global benefit. This is really exciting. It's actually going to be going over the entirety of the month, and tickets are now available. So to get yours, go to edudatasummit.com. That's E-D-U-D-A-T-A-S-U-M-M. MIT.com. If I don't see you there, however, I'll see you next time on QS in Conversation.